Blog Talk Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. We are the Viral Marketing Show with serious tips and a sense of fun. I am your host, Kathy Klotzgast, the founder of Keeping It Human, coming to you live from the epicenter of Silicon Valley, as I like to say, in beautiful San Jose, California. And this show airs Thursdays at 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time. We help marketing executives and their teams tell their best and most important company, product, and customer stories to the world. And this podcast is all about making marketing communications and content more human, fun, and effective. So we are a jargon monoxide poisoning-free zone, and our guests are, are equally such. We always love hearing from you. Leave a comment on the blog. And I have to say that um, one of the serendipitous things about uh, when I started in the new year back up with the podcast and our audio file got corrupted is people started emailing me with ideas for jingles. So this has been turned into a wonderful opportunity for our listeners to crowdsource some ideas. I think we're just going to go with a new jingle. That's what we'll do. So I think that's a brilliant idea. So thank you for that suggestion, everybody. Today we're going to talk about a great topic. Um, I'll introduce our guest, Roger Dooley, in just a second, but I want to just kind of frame it a little bit. We're going to talk about persuasion and influence marketing, and I think few people have written about this topic in neuromarketing as prolifically recently um, as Roger Dooley, so I'm very excited to have him on the show. I think for so long, uh, marketers, we, we aimed at the rational side of customers' brains because we irrationally believed everybody's rational, as Dan Ariely, and, and predictive, predictably irrational, uh, writes about, and he's right. Um, we are uh, not rational. Um, we don't always make rational decisions. Emotion plays a part. And selling features and benefits does, just doesn't work. So we have to reach customers' brains in a really different way if we want to persuade. And I, it's a very exciting time, I think, because we're learning so much about neuroscience, and that intersection of neuroscience and marketing is just fascinating to me. So um, without further ado, I'm going to read a little bit about our next guest, though he doesn't need an introduction. He's going to get one. Everybody who comes on the show deserves one. Roger Dooley is a speaker and author of Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing. He's the author of the po- popular blog, Neuromarketing, and Brainy Marketing at Forbes, which is a really great blog if you haven't, if you haven't read it. He's the founder of Dooley Direct, a marketing consultancy. And Dooley spent years in direct marketing as the co-founder of a successful catalog firm, and he was also the director of corporate planning for a Fortune 1000 company. And I have to say Brainfluence, I can't believe it's already been two or three years since the book came out, but it still remains one of my favorite books about the topic of uh, persuasion and influence marketing. So with that... I'm going to bring uh, Roger here on the line. Roger, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Kathy. Happy to be here. Great. Great to have you. Can you believe it's been two to three years since that book came out? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, it's it's about uh, three now. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, time sure flies and you're having fun. And I'm really excited, yeah. though, because the Spanish version is just about to release in two weeks. It's taken a while, but I know there's a lot of interest in the topic in both Spain and Latin America. So I'm really excited that finally there's a translation in Spanish coming out. Fantastic. I mean, that's a huge, huge, uh, you know, Spanish-speaking countries. That's a huge part of the, the world population, so that's fantastic. Congratulations. Um, I think we're at this really interesting time in marketing, and, and you, you know better than just about anybody on this. We know so much more about brain science, although we know, I think, um, neuroscientists are always saying, of what we know, we know very little. The brain is just this amazing, amazing organ, and we're still figuring things out. And I, I'm just curious from your perspective, since it's been about three years since the book was, was originally published, what do you see 
uh, as the most compelling lesson that marketers a are getting about neuromarketing, uh, and then secondly, where do they still have to make progress? What are what are they not getting about this? Right. Well, I guess uh, Kathy, there's a couple ways of looking at neuromarketing. Uh, I like to use a really broad definition that includes using any understanding of how our brains work to improve your marketing. Uh, so that uh, brings in behavior research, uh, psychology, and so on, uh, in addition to uh, harder tools of neuroscience. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, when people use the term neuromarketing, though, they refer specifically to techniques like fMRI, EEG, maybe biometrics, uh, or facial coding for determining whether, say, an ad or a product uh, is likely to succeed in the marketplace. Uh, I mean, the the holy grail for advertisers would be to uh, be able to uh, test 10 or 20 subjects uh, with an ad or a product and accurately predict how well it will do at, at scale. And we're getting a little bit closer to that uh, uh, some research from Temple University just came out uh, that uh, uh, evaluated, uh, at least in a preliminary way, multiple different neuromarketing techniques and then sort of cross-validated those with some help from uh, NYU researchers uh, against actual ad performance. Uh, so uh, there is starting to uh, uh, be some academic data about these different techniques. But I think overall the biggest change I'm seeing is that uh, even since I published the book, and I'm not taking credit for it, I think it's been a general trend, um, uh, marketers are more aware of the need to uh, incorporate uh, non-conscious factors in their marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything sort of that if you if you were updating the book today that you'd say, hey, here's been this big development in three years. Is there anything on the horizon that you think that now now that you know it, you would have had in the book three years ago? You know, Kathy, I don't think there's uh, anything major uh, per se, um, although I think, you know, when I put the book together, I uh, had 100 ideas, and even at the time, that that wasn't all I had, but now, um, uh, since that time, I've probably got 100 more that I could do, uh, and that's that's the part that's really interesting. There's just constantly uh, new research yeah. coming out that sheds light on some individual aspect of human behavior uh, that oftentimes can be very actionable for marketers. Yeah, and that's a new book. That's a new. There you go, Roger. Your next book, <laughs> your sequel. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I, you know, one of the things that you you there's so many great things um, that you've written about um, on the blog on Forbes, and you know, one of the things that you talk about is um, so well is taking your offer, a real benefit, and adding these these neural nudges, what you call neural nudges, and and one of the things you've talked a lot about is this idea of free, and. One of the things that you know I, you you've written about and and I keep coming back to is you know I think a lot about how for example with uh, with Amazon how they really changed I think the playing field with free shipping talk about free um, they really ran with it and I think changed what customers expectations actually are but talk about a powerful neural nudge um, can you talk more about that. Sure, and this uh, you mentioned Dan Ariely a, a minute ago. Um, yeah. A lot of the uh, well, advertisers have known uh, for decades that free is a powerful tool. Um, yeah. When I was doing uh, catalog marketing uh, 20 plus years ago, uh, we found that free shipping was a uh, powerful way to increase 
uh, the response rate on the catalog and increase sales. So that's that's not necessarily anything that's uh, brand new, but uh, uh, Arielli, with um, some research that he did, found uh, that it seemed to have a peculiar power that sort of uh, went beyond the uh, purely mathematical aspect. And he did uh, some work uh, asking uh, people which they would prefer uh, either a chocolate kiss, uh, which is kind of a plain little hunk of chocolate, not necessarily very tasty, or a chocolate truffle. Uh, and he started off with uh, a penny for the kiss or 16 cents for the truffle. Uh, and most folks chose the truffle because normally they would cost a dollar or so at a convenience store or it would come in a nice gift package. And it's a far superior piece of candy to the kiss. Uh, but when he dropped both of them by one cent uh, so that now the kiss was free, suddenly most people chose the kiss, uh, even though mm-hmm. the differential between the two was identical. And so that, that sort of shed a little bit of extra light on the free thing that uh, we, um, our brains just seem to uh, like the concept of free and, and maybe accord it even more value than it's worth. So that's why mm-hmm. when I occasionally see sales uh, at uh, retail stores or websites where, you know, buy one, get the second one for one cent or get the second one for a dollar. You know, I think that that's really a mistake. Uh, And the chances are they could improve uh, their sales on that exact same offer without really impacting their margins at all uh, if they just change that one cent to free. Yeah, that's interesting because the relative context, that's really interesting with the truffles because it is that relative context of what something is worth. I think that's really interesting. Which you And you write a lot about the way you package things when you have multiple offers. If you offer three or if you offer two, you might price it accordingly because you, you want to guide people towards maybe the, the higher margin offer. So think about the different relative contexts of different offers that you're, that you're putting together. Um, so the perception of value has, has something measurable for people. Right, and uh, I think what you're referring to is uh, what I call decoy marketing, and some of that stems from work by Ariely too. He's he's been a great Mm -hmm. resource um, uh, for folks who are uh, trying to translate scientific research into marketing. Um, But uh, his uh, classic experiment uh, uh, in uh, sort of introducing a product that won't sell but will influence uh, uh, customers to buy another product uh, is uh, a test that had gave people a choice between two uh, subscriptions to a financial publication. Uh, one was uh, internet only, uh, and the price uh, was, I think, $69, and the other was internet and print uh, for $125. In, in that condition, about two-thirds of the people chose the cheaper internet only offer. Uh, and then when he introduced a product that really didn't make sense, sense which was a print-only version, also priced at $125. Uh, you, know, you would think, well, who would be stupid enough to buy that product because the Internet and print is also $125. And in fact, nobody did make that choice, but it dramatically shifted uh, the mix of sales so that uh, in that context, about 85% of the people chose the more expensive offer. Uh, and with this and some other experiments, uh, what Ellie found was that uh, if you had uh, a product that was a little bit worse uh, than another product, uh, somehow that juxtaposition of similar but not equal items made the other one look significantly more attractive. Uh, 
So uh, a manufacturer or a marketer um, uh, who wanted to sell more of a particular product could introduce a very similar one, uh, but that's not quite as attractive uh, at close to the same price or even the same price as Ariely's original experiment did, uh, and that should increase sales of the other product. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, there, he's he's definitely done some really interesting research. Uh, of what you're seeing out there, Roger, and I know you're, you, you look at neuromarketing in a bigger, broader, definitional way, who's doing any who who is out there what companies are doing some really innovative things in your opinion and and how are they applying these concepts well i think there's a a lot of um uh, companies that are engaged in different kinds of neuromarketing using different technologies. And, you know, it's uh, it's really hard to sort out um, uh, who's really doing an amazing job because uh, they tend not to publish their work. Uh, their clients know if the choices they are recommending are good. Uh, at least one hopes that, that to be the case, although sometimes if you know, um, somebody says, okay, use version A of the ad, uh, and it works well. You don't really know uh, that it's uh, because of their recommendation, or perhaps uh, version B would have worked just as well or better. But uh, in any case, uh, you know there uh, there are certainly many companies uh, doing this, and you've got folks in the EEG space like uh, Sands Research, uh, uh, Biometrics, uh, like uh, Interscope. Uh, there are uh, folks in Europe doing fMRI. Uh, probably uh, the most recognizable one is Nielsen, who uh, purchased a neuromarketing company, Neurofocus, a few years ago, and now it's pretty much integrated into the Nielsen brand, uh, and they're primarily EEG as well. And um, mm-hmm. um, many companies actually use multiple techniques, so they may combine eye tracking with another technology, or they could use uh, biometrics mm-hmm. and EEG, as SANS does. So uh, it's right. it's not always a clean split. But there, there are folks who are doing some interesting stuff with uh, facial coding, uh, mm-hmm. in uh, some cases, uh, they may be uh, looking at micro expressions using videotape and sort of an expert uh, analyst to record these expressions. Uh, but there's also some work being done using uh, automated systems for recognizing expressions. And uh, the, the jury's still out on some of this stuff. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I mentioned the Temple research uh, that's just been published. Uh, they looked at a variety of neuromarketing techniques and their predictive power. And what they found was that uh, the only uh, technique in this one test, and they they did this in isolation, so they did not combine, say, EEG and biometrics to see if that produced uh, uh, a different result. But uh, they found that fMRI was the only technique uh, that worked significantly better than simply asking people via, say, you know, survey or questionnaire, because mm-hmm. the question isn't so much, uh, gee, can uh, EEG uh, uh, predict behavior or predict uh, uh, what consumers w- will do and so on. Uh, the question is, can it predict it a lot better than uh, just asking people, which is relatively right. cheap compared to running EEG studies. But and not so this initial not round of tests showed that fMRI was the uh, one technique that by itself seemed to have that extra predictive power. 
I gotcha. And, and let's talk about companies that are actually using neural nudges. So let's talk about one of the things that you've written about in, in your Forbes blog. You talked about, for example, uh, Starbucks, and I thought that was a great example of people, and not necessarily neuromarketing, but, but at, a, at a much more um, uh, practical sort of small nudge level. And, and, and you talked about the idea with Starbucks of they make it so easy for people with their their past. They you know, you, you don't you stand in line, you can buy your cup of coffee while you're in line and you don't have to wait in line. And they make it so easy with their rewards program uh to um just go in there, you're in line, you paid for it, you just pick up your order. And you talked about these small just little things that um can make a huge difference. And those are the kinds of things I'm I'm wondering who's doing what in that area. We we on the consumer side it seems that there are a lot more examples and I could be wrong. I haven't seen a whole lot on the B2B side of these these neural nudges. Have you? And is there anything interesting out there? Well, you know, it it's hard to tell sometimes because uh any uh a company that's doing a good job of marketing is probably going to incorporate some of these without thinking of them uh, mm-hmm. as a neural nudge specifically. So, for instance, um, uh, one of uh, Robert Cialdini's six principles is liking, uh, where if uh, someone uh, establishes uh, common attributes uh, that uh, you have in common, you will like them and you're more likely to be persuaded by them. So, uh, in, say, even a, a business-to-business advertising context, uh, if you can show uh, that your company or perhaps your uh, founder or CEO uh, has uh, common interests with those customers, uh, which could just be a, a real enthusiasm about the product category, then uh, that will create a liking effect. But, I mean, I think even uh, somebody who wasn't familiar with Childini's uh, principles of uh, influence uh, – uh, would just say, well, that's just good business, uh, you know, to show uh, show the uh, founder of the company and some of his interests, uh, which is true. You know, people have been doing that uh, uh, for years, and it, it just sort of made sense. Or another example uh, that uh, is social proof, uh, where just about uh, every, well, perhaps not every marketing appeal, but certainly many, many marketing appeals uh, attempt to uh, show that. Uh, there are a lot of other people using the product or service. Uh, if you go to uh, a, a blog and they want you to subscribe, they'll tell you to uh, join 43,000 other subscribers. Uh, that's a form of social proof. Um, right. A company that uh, um, talks about how many uh, people have used their product, uh, that's social proof. And again, uh, they may say that's just good business. They may not be looking at it as, well, you know, if, if you read Cialdini, this is what he'd tell you to do. Mhm. No question about it. I think people don't necessarily think about it as a as a kind of an, a neural nudge in any way. They, you're right. I mean, in the, but, in the but I think you know if you do think about it that way, Kathy, I think that's that's something that uh, I try and uh, convey to uh, marketers is that uh, sure a lot of this stuff is is common sense, but uh, you uh, to maximize your uh, revenue or your conversion rate, if you're talking about web conversion, uh, you want to think about uh, these uh, neural nudges, if you will, yeah, in a psychological way. And you know, uh, I call them also non-conscious motivators, uh, which I guess neural nudges is a little bit easier, but um, you want to motivate people 
uh, to take the action that uh, you want them to take, such as buy your product or perhaps request information, uh, provide uh, their uh, name and their email address or whatever, whatever you want them to do. Um, uh, you have to motivate them to do that. Uh, and you may motivate them certainly with conscious motivators, uh, things like features and benefits and sales and discounts and so on. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you want to also incorporate those non-conscious motivators uh, like social proof or uh, imagery that appeals to their uh, some mm-hmm. subconscious leaning of theirs uh, and that kind of thing. And doing that in a structured fashion is important. Uh, you know, actually thinking about uh, okay, what are the kinds of non-conscious motivators that might work? And then, uh, you know, choosing the one or two or three that uh, really make the most sense in your context. And also, if, in, particularly in the web situation, actually testing those rather than just assuming that uh, social proof is going to be the uh, sort of killer motivator for your situation. Uh, you know, uh, testing that against something else would be a good idea. Right. No no question. I think there are the conscious motivators, then there's the, the unconscious motivators, and I think that's where, for especially in a B2B context, they don't have the history, or they haven't, the mar- marketing hasn't been thinking in, in the B2B context the same way uh, the consumer world has in terms of emotions. You know, I remember there was a report, Google had a report a few years ago, and they talked about, wow, you know, uh, sort of this emotional, personal benefit drives, is worth, you know, two, twice the weight, has twice the weight as the rational benefits do in a B2B context. And I didn't think it was anything new. It wasn't news to me, but a lot of, you know, B2B marketers are like, oh, wow, there's these subconscious things. And I was like, of course, there always is. There's, there's people. And it comes down to, and I think you're right, a lot of it is understanding that, and the choices people make and likability. And I just don't – but likability is really interesting because in the B2B world, I don't think companies think about it that same way as, as consumers. Well, companies. you know, uh, I guess uh, I spent some years in uh, B2B sales, and I think that uh, uh, skilled B2B salespeople use many of these uh, techniques. Again, they may not recognize them as such, uh, but – uh, when they go in and they see uh, uh, perhaps a picture of the uh, customer on a golf course, uh, they will talk about uh, uh, golf for a while before they get down to business. Uh, and what they're doing there uh, is establishing that common attribute uh, and creating that liking effect. So uh, it's not unknown in B2B, but I, when you think about formally planning a marketing campaign, you're right, the emphasis tends to be uh, on those features and benefits and prices uh, that are the, the rational factors. And in part, that makes sense because uh, in a B2B situation, some portion, perhaps a significant portion of the decision will be based on rational factors. There's no choice. Uh, you know, uh, if you're selling fragrances to consumers, uh, you can say this is a totally emotional sell. You know, you never see a fragrance uh, ad that says, uh, uh, you know, no. Uh, Survey show that our fragrance uh, uh, is judged to smell better by uh, 83% of uh, the people right. who Those try it. For, you know, it's, uh, it. It's a totally, totally emotional sale showing, right. uh, you know, some kind of uh, uh, sensual imagery or some imagery that somehow represents uh, what they uh, think their customers will aspire to. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, in a B2B context, uh, these decisions have to make sense. If you're selling somebody uh, a raw material for their product, it has to be appropriate. If you're selling them a service, uh, it has to actually get the job done. Uh, and also, 
uh, probably more of the decision-making process is likely to be rational simply because oftentimes these B2B decisions are made at least in part by uh, committees or by interaction between multiple people. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that um, non-conscious uh, effects aren't going to be important, uh, but probably those uh, conscious, uh, rational type things are going to be a little bit more to the fore when you've got uh, you know, yeah. multiple managers sitting around a desk discussing something. And actually, that's what the research showed wasn't the case, actually. And that's the interesting part, is that it, in fact, wasn't. The personal benefits far outweighed the rational benefits. And I believe that in B2B. I think there is more rational benefit. and We're not going to use social proof to sell cologne. But, but I think what they were saying is that it was more, more weighted towards personal, which I, coming from the B2B marketing world myself, I, I do believe that to be true because we're always thinking as a buyer, will this make me look bad? How will this affect me? So there is a very conscious, personal, and it's a a very, and some of it may be subconscious, but there is, I think, a a large portion of it that is a conscious, personal motivation versus a purely rational benefit. Um, And I think that's what the interesting part is. Kathy, I think the uh, difference is uh, the features and benefits in price uh, are sort of the baseline uh, that any product has to meet to sort of uh, go into the go to the next phase of evaluation. Uh, in other words, if the specifications for the product simply aren't suitable, uh, you know, all the emotional appeals are in the world aren't going to uh, allow it to be purchased. Or if if it is, then it's going to end up being uh, really bad for the person who made that decision. Well, that's true. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> once you get to that sort of uh, minimum uh, uh, performance where, yes, this, this meets our needs uh, right. and the uh, price is uh, within the realm that we can afford, uh, then you can get into these emotional effects. It can be quite powerful. And, of course, uh, one thing that is uh, really important in the business context is what's the impact going to be uh, on the buyer? Uh, is their job security going to be enhanced or reduced no if question. they make this decision? No uh, are they likely to impress their boss or be chewed out by their boss? It's reputation. Uh, and, and those kinds of things are big motivators. No question about it. And I think you're right about the minimum viability of a product. It has to meet that minimum standard of, of viability. You're, I, th- I think you're absolutely right, and that may explain some of the difference. But there's no question. Um, when you're conscious or unconscious, some of it may be unconscious, but you're certainly in, in, a, in a B2B situation sitting across from a buyer who's thinking about, will you make me look good or bad if I make this buy? And, and how will I come out ahead reputation-wise from that buy? And and so you're, I think you're right. There there are definitely these these conscious and and subconscious motivators and it, I think B2B it seems like you know we have further to go in B2B but there I'm starting to see more and more B2B recognize that there is this even this kind of subconscious um, personal driver that you just cannot get out of a human being. You can't remove that from the buying decision and, and oh, I Oh no of course I, not. You know. And, and also, oftentimes think, the, the products are interchangeable. You know, the, the products aren't all that different. Uh, so uh, especially in that situation, a lot of these other factors can really come into play. No question. And, and this is this is a tough question because we only have a few minutes left, and there's so many great things to talk about with you. Um, if there is – there's so many places of, um, companies can get started thinking differently about persuasion and, and, and influence marketing in the sense of how they can use these, these little – Neural nudges, if you will, and, and some of them 
are, some companies are, and they may not call them that. But if you were going to give just one piece of advice to companies and marketing teams out there thinking about these types of things, where should they start? Where's a good place to start? Well, I think there's a lot of literature there. There's uh, so many good books, uh, uh, and it, a lot of it depends on exactly what you're looking at. There um, are a couple of books just on the psychology of pricing, for example. Uh, so what, what I think what I would do is read as much as possible on the topic, and that would be uh, uh, read you know three or four uh, different books that uh, give you a different perspective on it. Cialdini's Influence is certainly uh, a, a really good starting point. Uh, he's got a, a new one out, The Small Big, uh, that's uh, also uh, quite enlightening. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's books like mine, and one one thing too, uh, there are uh, oh, there's a lot of free content now uh, being written because I think uh, even as uh, uh, business people are recognizing more and more that these uh, non-conscious factors are important. Uh, content writers uh, are picking up on that too. And so there's there's a lot of uh, really good uh, blog posts that are being pumped out now that if you want information, say, on social proof, uh, not only will you find it in Cialdini's books and, and uh, books like mine and others, uh, but you'll find a blog post about it that may have uh, illustrations of how different websites use it or you know that sort of thing. So that uh, blogs can be a valuable resource as well. Absolutely, no question. And that's all the time we have. I can't believe it. There's so many more questions I have, but that's okay. We'll save it for another time. I know you've got other other content that you're working on. Um, the site for Roger is neurosciencemarketing.com. Roger, is there another site you want to direct people to? Yeah, probably rogerdooley.com would be a good jumping off point because okay. uh, right there on the home page, uh, I link to uh, my other websites and blogs and so on. Perfect. Then start with rogerdooley.com, which will take you to neurosciencemarketing.com and some of the other things, that the wonderful content that Roger has. Roger, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Kathy. It's been fun. All right. Take care. Great stuff. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, please do. Please go to rogerjulie.com. So many great articles, so many things that I think have application that 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 we may not think of it as applying marketing um, and neuromarketing principles, but in fact we are. So, so much good stuff, actually. And if you get a chance to read um, his Forbes columns, I really recommend you do it. Um, you can follow me at, on, at Kathy Cloat's guest on Twitter, no hyphen, and for Roger, he is at Roger Dooley. As always, keep those questions and comments coming. Thank you so much. I love hearing from you, everybody. You can also email me at Kathy, with a K, at keepingithuman.com. You know what I'm going to say, everybody. I'm Kathy Cloak's guest, Keeping It Human, so you keep it human out there, too. So until next time, we'll see you then. <laughs>